Are you an artist who sells their work online? If so, you may know how difficult it can be for potential collectors to really get a sense of how your artwork would look in their home. I know that when I managed an art studio, this was definitely a problem we ran into. But now, thanks to Canvi, this challenge is easy to overcome. All you have to do is upload your artwork, select one of over 500 room templates, and voila! Customers will see just how good your art will look on their wall. With tons of customizations that allow you to change wall colors, texture, and even room accessories, it's easy to match the aesthetic you're after. So, where can you use Canvi's room simulations? The real question is, where can't they be used? From the portfolio page of a website, to a shopping portal, to social media, the uses are endless. And for creatives using Etsy, Canvi has a built-in Etsy integration that allows users to publish their finished rooms straight to their store. Artists can also create a website directly in Canvi using a custom domain name to show off their artwork in a polished, professional manner. So, if you want to take your art to the next level and present yourself like a true professional, be sure to check out Canvi.com. That's C-A-N-V-Y.com. Give it a try with a free hobby account, and if you're hooked, upgrade to either a yearly or monthly plan. If you don't like it, no problem. You can cancel anytime and there's a 100% money back guarantee. As a, as a designer, there's going to be a hole somewhere in the world where you took all those things out of to create your work. So if it's bricks, there's a hole where there was once dirt. If it's a timber uh, structure, then there's a hole in the forest where you took the timber from. So it is, a, it is a rather violent act to create design. The more we can get that violence under control, of course, the better we are for the long-term health of the planet. Hi, I'm Sam Piers, and you're listening to the My Modern Met Top Artist Podcast. Before we get started, we wanted to remind you that the podcast is now officially available on YouTube. We've just introduced this new medium and we are super excited about it because now you can see some of the projects we're discussing as you listen to the episode. To listen to this episode on YouTube, click on the link in the show notes. If you're a loyal podcaster with absolutely no need for video, that's great too. You can still find all of the interesting work we talk about today on our social media and on our guest social media. It's all linked in the description of this episode. Our guest this week is Craig Dykers, one of the founders of Snowheta. When I was in architecture school, Snowheta was probably my favorite design firm. Their designs include work on buildings like the Oslo Opera House and the Library of Alexandria, but it also includes work in mediums you might not expect, like in their redesign of currency for the Central Bank of Norway. That's because Snowheta is not an architecture firm. Though Craig is an architect and they have created beautiful buildings around the world, the office describes themselves as a transdisciplinary design firm with expertise in many fields. Their collaborative approach to design is just one reason they fit in so well to this season's theme of impact. We talk about a lot in this episode, including Snowheta's approach to designing with nature, the firm's first project through the design competition for the Library of Alexandria, and a term Craig describes as climate abuse. Let's start by hearing from Craig about the meaning of the name Snowheta. Our name is quite unusual. It was a risky proposition to name yourself after a relatively little-known mountain in central Norway with a vowel that very few people understand since it's a Norwegian or, or Nordic vowel. Um, but our, our name is associated with this place, uh, this very beautiful mountain that has a great deal of history behind it in Norse mythology. It is important to us because, well, obviously it's beautiful and, and that is a, it's a wonderful inspiration and 
we climb it as often as we can. But furthermore, it's a place where landscape and architecture and identity all come together in uh, one sort of dramatic location. So for us, that's important, the fusion of these worlds. And finally, we didn't want to name ourselves after names of people. We don't feel authorship is as valuable as the meaning of place and the final character of a work. So the anonymous, in a way, character of who we are was important as we established the company. And furthermore, we are not essentially an architecture practice. We're a design firm that accommodates landscape architecture, architecture, interior architecture, graphic design, identity, industrial design, product design, a number of insights into how we work. And we try to pull all of that together as much as we can. So in a sense, although we are a modern design firm, we uh, operate in some ways in the way that the older studios used to operate prior to modernism. Can you tell us about a project that you feel really demonstrates the benefits that can be gained from this approach to design? Well, ultimately, we all have to share a similar goal. And in our world, we're interested in many of the things that are important in the world at large, not just important to the world of design in the more strict sense. So we're interested in sustainable issues, and that is a broad range of issues, including habitat and biodiversity, as well as climate change and material use. And also we are interested in social diversity and building connections between a broad spectrum of people. We're intrigued by intellectual sustainability. In other words, design that allows us to open our mind or think about more challenging constituents of design. All of those things come together in a very heated discussions generally in the beginning of a project. We try to put everyone together in a place and talk before we start to do the traditional things of sketch or model or make something in a computer, these kinds of things. And in that way, if you look at some of our projects like the Calgary Public Library or the Under Restaurant in Norway, Calgary is in Canada, you can see that habitat is important, a characteristic of the um, design conditions. We created, we strengthen the habitat around these structures. In the case of Under, it's the underwater habitat, the marine habitat nearby. In Calgary, it's creating more space for uh, native and natural plants, naturalized plants to grow in the urban context. So uh, that sort of is a foundation. And then as the humans move towards these projects, they become more and more aware of these ideas. And they start to meet each other, strangers, meet their friends and others in in the context of these projects, and the ideas sort of become closer together. As you move inside of them, you'll see in Under or in Calgary uh, that the design, uh, wayfinding and graphic design characteristics promote the same ideas of the larger design directions that we're following. So as you move in and out from zooming in and zooming out, each of these projects has a layer of meaning, a layer of context, a layer of identity that is more and more intimate and less and less intimate as you move further and further away. We like to say that zooming in and zooming out is an important part of how we think. So each of these disciplines or characters of this studio think about things in different scales, and we put all those scales together. One of the results of this zooming in and zooming out is a really elegant philosophy on designing with the environment. I asked Craig about this technique. First, on how Snowheda designs with nature, and second, if they try to merge with the landscape or try to minimize how invasive their response to the site is. 
He walks us through finding inspiration in nature, but he also makes some really great points about the undeniable impact we have as architects. Interestingly, if you look at the natural world around us, it's very easy to conclude that nature is wonderfully sculptural, beautifully aesthetic. Every insect that you see, even if it's a little fly, will have some characteristic about it that is in balance. Its color may be unique or its shape or form has a quality that is impressive. And all of those shapes and forms are coming out of the natural process of life and existence. So we should be able, I think, to turn nature through human interaction into the same kinds of beautiful things that we see around us that we haven't created or made ourselves. So I think there's not a big gap between the beauty that we see in nature and the world that we create as humans. And ultimately, of course, we are a part of nature. And the more we're able to understand that, the easier it is to build this bridge between the natural world and ourselves. The further away we distance ourselves from nature, the harder it is to create objects that have a similar kind of beauty. That's a great response. It reminds me of one of the recent projects that Snowhead has proposed. So though he's known for many good things and bad things, Theodore Roosevelt's legacies in one part is his contribution to conservation. Snowhead has recently won that design competition for a North Dakota library named after the president. And that's partially inspired by his love for the natural landscape, correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt was the the first uh, substantial public figure to create legislation that allowed us to conserve natural landscapes as the United States was colonizing the territories in North America. And of course, that's where the complex legacy comes in, because on one hand, he was very thoughtful and empathetic. And in other ways, he was occupying land that didn't belong to the settlers that were moving across the continent. So I think uh, one thing is important to say that large personalities are often complex, and we shouldn't idealize anyone even if they're not a large personality. People have positive and negative attributes to who they are, and it's our job as a society to understand better those attributes and try and learn from them. Shutting things out because we may not agree with them doesn't help us learn. So I think a part of this project will be uh, to evaluate the complexity of this uh, very important figure in in history of this continent. He he was incredibly thoughtful when it came to understanding landscape. And in a sense, we feel that he read the landscape in the same way that he read a book or a work of literature. To him, it was an epic story of, of a tremendous magnitude. And we like to look at the landscape in the same way. Also, he didn't just sort of have a hands-off approach to landscape. He put his hands in the mud. He put his feet in the mud. Uh, He worked with uh, domestic livestock and interacted, of course, with wildlife, sometimes in a not-so-positive way, more according to the norms of the time. He was quite a little overactive hunter of sorts, although in in many ways he he felt he was contributing to science, at least in the context of his time. But um, I can say that we take this a similar approach. We we love the world around us. We love to learn from the world around us, but we don't stand back and we're not shy. We like to participate 
and connect directly to things. So sometimes people mischaracterize our work as merging with nature, merging with the landscape. That's not the case. All we're doing is trying to have a dialogue with nature. Sometimes it's a soft dialogue, and sometimes it's a more abrupt or uh, intense dialogue where it's not as quiet as one might uh, hope for if they're thinking only of a soft relationship. So that spectrum of dialogue allows us to be real with the world around us to be it's the same as if you're for example in a dinner with a friend if you're just sitting there being quiet the whole time the dinner takes place and the other person is talking to you and you're just saying yes 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 that's not a very good dinner so um, really you have to interact with your your colleagues and your and your friends and we do the same with, with the natural world yeah I'm really questioning how often I use the word merging with nature, the idea of architecture merging with nature. <laughs> That's a, it's a great distinction because realistically, however minimally invasive you try to be, you'll have an effect. So that approach of sort of embracing the effect and not being afraid to kind of reimagine the, the building's role. It's true. Sometimes I, I tell um, people if I'm the little bit of teaching that I do, that uh, whatever you make as a, as a designer, there's going to be a hole somewhere in the world where you took all those things out of to create your work. So if it's bricks, there's a hole where there was once dirt. If it's a timber structure, then there's a hole in the forest where you took the timber from. So it is a, it is a rather violent act to create design. The more we can get that violence under control, of course, the better we are for the long-term health of the planet. But ultimately, you are always interacting in a violent way with nature as you take things from the world around you and reconstruct them in your own uh, imagination. And then they become real from, from there uh, as real aspects of the, of the environment. So I, I think we shouldn't brush that under the table. It's, it's very easy to, to take all the problems that we are associated with and just pretend they don't exist or deal with them in other ways that are sort of overly optimistic or utopian. We have to accept the bad so that we can manage it better. One of Snowheda's most recent projects is the Ford Research and Engineering Campus in Dearborn, Michigan. Craig describes this project as an opportunity to reimagine how we will live and work together. We get into the complexity of the proposal, and we also get to talk about the word I often use in reference to Snowheda and the word that this season is based on. That word is, of course, impact. With the Ford Research and Engineering Campus, it's a magnificent scale of one of the world's most important um, companies, both design and manufacturing. The world of automobiles is changing into the world of mobility. And so companies like Ford are recognizing that diversification and uh, widening their context is very important. Furthermore, they now, in retrospect, are able to see the consequences of the inventions that they have created or sort of developed in the world around us. The challenge of road systems harming the environment, uh, exhaust systems that may harm the environment, uh, loss uh, of materials or inappropriate use of materials, uh, accidents and death, all of these things are the negative consequences of what was essentially a tremendous, uh, incredibly powerful and useful invention 
of the automobile. Uh, now, uh, companies, especially Ford, but those like Ford, are, are saying, how can we improve the lives of people, which was the basic question they asked themselves when they started. How can we improve the lives of people through different types of inventions, whether it be electric or even human-powered mobility? How can we create better road systems to allow those new worlds to thrive? How can we empower the workforce in the world around us through types of mobility that help them do their job easier? How can we empower the uh, feeling of culture so that we're not all segregated into little pods that move around separately throughout the day? Are there places where people can more easily meet? And, you know, I I thought about this uh, a little bit um, as I was thinking about this particular podcast. The notion of impact is really interesting because I have a negative connotation with that word. Sometimes I'm a little bit critical. I think architects are a little language lazy. So we use words that we think we know what they mean, but they they mean something else. And impact is actually a fairly violent word. It it has to do with uh, abrupt or um, extreme pressure on something or pushing of something. It really is about um, a kind of energy that's abrupt and quick and sharp. And it's also a neutral word. Impact could be good or bad. Uh, And so we don't really think about our work and, for example, the work at Ford about its impact. What we're trying to do, perhaps more, other, other words that are more useful to us are enabling, facilitating, empowering, endowing, investing. All of these words are interesting to us because if you only rely on impact, then it will shut out all kinds of people or you'll forget about one thing over another due to the kind of aggressiveness of the impact that you're pushing. We like to nudge things along. So in the nature of the workplace, we feel that you cannot engineer life, uh, which was a mistake that people made in the 60s and 70s. There was a, a science of modeling life. And if you followed a certain methodology, you could build a world where everybody would be happy and everything would be managed properly. But humans cannot be modeled in that way. We are essentially irrational creatures. We may do quite a lot that seems civilized or seems studious or seems uh, in some way related to society, but we're also selfish and we do a number of things that are problematic and challenging to others and to the world around us. So all of these worlds are entering our, our understanding of the workplace of the future and The fact that work isn't really work, it's a passion. People have to have passion for what they do. And if they don't have passion, then it's enslavement. (laughs) And, you know, we we need to avoid those feelings. And furthermore, uh, you know, work is not essentially ordinary personal life. I mean, it's more public. The, The kind of work that you do in a studio, for example, or almost any type of work, you interact with others. So you have to think of yourselves as a community. But you need to protect individuality within that. So all of those things are empowering us to work for Ford and the other workplace design uh, that we're approaching now. We've just released a few furniture designs that help do this. And uh, we look forward to a future where the COVID pandemic will have given us new insight to the value of community. It's clear that Snohetta is a special kind of design firm. They are named after a mountain rather than an architect, and they do much more than architecture. Aside from all of this, they also had a pretty unorthodox start to their office. Rather than building up larger and larger commissions, Craig and the other founders of Snohetta won a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity with the design of the Library of Alexandria. We get the chance to ask Craig about that story. 
those things helped us uh, work on this particular design competition in a very unique way. But I can tell you just in a nutshell, we were all very young, around the age of 30. Uh, I was younger than 30 at the time. And we had just been out of school, most of us, for a very short period of time. And we wanted to do something with our ourselves and uh, explore the world. Uh, it, it's uh, always a, an interest when, you, that when you're younger to reach out and, and spread your wings, uh, see w- what all of that education meant <laughs> in some way. Most of us do it inside the context of uh, more senior people in offices that are already practicing. And all of us had done a little bit of that too before we came together. Um, but we saw uh, all of us in different locations around the world saw the advertisement for this competition. It was uh, a little bit hard to find, but we found it in, in different ways, and we thought to do it. And none of us knew each other all at the same time, so they were all, we were all friends of friends and in different locations around the world, Los Angeles, Oslo. And we thought, well, let's do it. And we started calling between friends, and we all agreed after some conversation that it'd be smart to do it together. And the Norwegian group uh, in Oslo had a small studio called Snöhetta, and uh, we in, in Los Angeles had a kind of loose association of people that were working on different projects in the area in California. And um, we thought, well, let's get together in Los Angeles because, interestingly, Los Angeles is on the same latitude as Alexandria in Egypt. And and it faces a harbor, and it has um, very many similar characteristics, a dense urban environment and so on. Uh, and we all found a little place. We didn't have very much money. We were all just kind of young kids with not much at all and very little money in our pockets. And we used most of our money to set up a temporary studio. It was, we didn't have a studio in L.A. We just found an, an, an apartment space that was empty, and we we bought a lot of, uh, you know, wholesale food because we didn't have enough money to really buy a lot of food. Or we ate in the noodle shop next door, which was the cheapest place that we could. It was in Koreatown in Los Angeles, oddly enough, either on or next to a street called Alexandria. And uh, we we then sent off our competition and we thought, well, when we looked at it, the design, we thought, well, we definitely are going to get noticed. The design was too unique for its time, but we didn't imagine that we would win first. And then sometime later, we got the calls that we were had the first prize. We went to Egypt and we arrived for the uh, ceremony of the award and they had never met us or knew who we were. It was an anonymous competition. So I think everyone went into a bit of shock when they saw how young and how poor we looked. We, we didn't even have a suit, most of us. We just put together what we had or we went out and bought a suit and a uh, cheap suit somewhere in, in probably in Egypt. And, uh, and then um, uh, I, remember, I remember thinking to myself and saying out loud to them when they looked astonished, well, it's a good thing you chose someone young because an older designer will be dead by the time this project is finished. It's going to take a decade or more. And sure enough, it took 13 years and we stuck with it. Worked on it to the point of near exhaustion or total exhaustion. We went bankrupt, uh, you know, again, uh, and we finally delivered it and built it. Now it's time to take a break from my questions and turn to some of yours. Here's this episode's edition of Ask the Artist. Our first Ask the Architect comes from an Instagram user, Keith SCH16. What is the process that goes into designing the culturally delicate works done by Snowheaded? 
Oh, well, thank you, question SCH16. <laughs> now I definitely feel like I'm a part of the future when I'm just, uh, replying to people that are numbered. Uh, I would say that um, cultural projects are quite challenging, but we also must not forget that nearly every project is cultural. It's not just museums or libraries or theaters, the things that we traditionally attribute have the traditional attributes of cultural meaning. But an office building can promote culture. It's got a streetscape. It's got a ground level where people interact with it. It denotes culture of life in the city uh, if it's in an urban environment. Even a suburban home can have culture because it's the culture of those that live nearby or across from you and how you relate to them. So we're very careful not to strictly limit the term culture to uh, those more traditional institutions. I can't remember who, who said this, but it was a horrible person I know. Uh, some, sometime during World War II, they said, every time I hear the wor word culture, I release the safety latch on my revolver. And that's because culture is also a very powerful tool of society, and people can use culture to overwhelm others, sometimes for the better and sometimes uh, for more domination or control. So already, we're without even answering the question, we've entered a world that's that's sticky and tough. Uh, and this suggests, of course, that as we approach it as a real process, we have to be aware of all of those insights. If you simply walk into a cultural project and say, well, we know theaters, we've designed 50,000 theaters, you know, in 25 countries, and, and boy, do we know theaters. This is not about understanding culture. This is only about understanding program. Within the program, there are cultural attributes. So a, a user of a theater in Austria may approach a theater in a different way than a user of a theater in Mexico or uh, any other part of the world in China versus, uh, say, in the central United States or Canada. So we have to be very much with our eyes wide open as we move through a cultural project. Talk to a lot of people. Get your feet on the ground. Don't be shy to talk to strangers. I can't tell you how many times I've had to embarrass myself going up to strangers in the street saying, I know this is weird and you probably don't believe me, but I am actually an architect and I'd like to know what you think about a library on this corner here or do you live in the neighborhood? You know, eight out of 10 run away in fear and then two, <laughs> two will stop and talk and those two can be very important. If you're doing a museum that's an extension of another museum, you stand in the lobby of the existing museum and talk to people. It's, it's something I did actually, I was taught in school. I was told to walk through neighborhoods. So Get your feet on the ground, get your fingers dirty, don't be afraid to be embarrassed, and widen your perspective of what the words mean and what the actual goal is. So our next Ask the Architect is from Cray Adrian on Instagram. What is your best advice at the moment for people who will start their own practice? Well, uh, you say it's Cray Adrian or Adrian Cray? That's an unusual name. It's C-R-E Adrian, like Cray Adrian, like Create Adrian maybe? Wonderful. Getting these mysterious names out of the ether is quite quite exciting for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, I've already talked a bit about uh, that, as uh, and that is the power of naivete or ignorance is something that you need to cherish. But what's more important is understanding where you're ignorant, where you're dumb. So everyone has an easier time understanding where they're smart. We like to say, oh, I can do this very, very well, or I'm good at that, or I'm good at these things, and therefore I should do this. We have a very hard time saying, boy, I'm terrible at this, or I only know half of what I should know about this. 
those understandings are as important as the those that are positive. The the negative understandings are as important as the positive ones. So in in that sense, when you're starting your own practice, know where you have to ask other people for help. Know where you should seek advice from. Uh, always be inquisitive. That will help you balance your strengths with your weaknesses. I sometimes often would criticize the uh, professional examination because theoretically you're supposed to know everything. I think a better way of creating an exam would be to test people's knowledge of how they can go out and find information, not how much they can memorize. Because your ability to seek out information, and especially today as the internet becomes more and more untrustworthy or more and more complex, uh, you know, we need to have very sensible ways to get honest and accurate information. So that is, is probably a priority. The second thing is, I would say, have a lot of friends. <laughs> Have as many friends as you possibly can. Widen your spectrum of friends by 30 times. The more friends you have, the more connected you're to the world. And the more connected you are, the more projects, possibilities will become available to you. Because architecture is not art. Art can be made in the confines of a studio without any friends. And in fact, some artists might say, the less friends I have, the better my art is. Uh, with architecture, uh, you, you kind of have to take a different approach. You have to be a part of society. And then I suppose the third thing I would say, if you want to make a lot of friends, you're going to have to know a, a lot about a lot of things that aren't architecture. Um, because making friends and only talking about architecture is going to limit your your pool of, of contacts. So learn about whatever things you enjoy outside of your architectural life, whether it's nature or science or literature or music, and make friends through those worlds as much as through your architectural world. Because the last person that will probably ever give you a new project is another architect. Although I have a lot of architectural friends and we do past projects as much as we can to each other, but we're a small group of that feels that way. So, you know, I, widening the dimension of your life is a very important character of, of starting a new practice. And don't over-focus, which is what we did with Alexandria. We just found one thing. It came in the door. It was spectacular. And we're, all we did was that. And we then it stopped and we looked around and said, now what are we going to do? We hadn't prepared for the eventuality of its finishing. That's a that's a fantastic response. I think the the comment on having friends other than architects is especially difficult kind of thinking outside of your bubble and relevant to your office. Yeah, especially because we're taught to sort of you know, bury ourselves in our studio and never go mm -hmm. out until, you know, four in the morning when you get some coffee and go to sleep <laughs> or something. You know, that's the wrong approach too. Right. Work efficiently so that you can leave at reasonable hours and have a life that is about connecting with others. Our next question comes from an Instagram user, Salvador underscore Dali. How is climate change impacting your design approach? <laughs> from the surrealist underscored. And it's Da Ali, so I'm pretty sure that their name is Ali. Uh, well, um, we're often struggling even with the term climate change for various reasons. Climate's always changing, and this is part of the problem that, that um, those people who don't believe in science uh, grab that term and abuse it. Um, sometimes I just call it climate abuse. Mm -hmm. We're abusing the climate, which is more direct and more, more straightforward of an understanding of our interactions as humans with the world around us. Climate change occurs very slowly also, even though in our lifetime we're seeing the effects of climate abuse speed up uh, much, much 
we're seeing the results and consequences much faster than we would have in previous generations. But still, the overall effect is quite slow. Um, the rising of sea levels may impact some areas along the coast, but for the other 90% of a continent that isn't along the coast, those people don't see that, so they don't really care. Or they blame it on stupid people who live too close to the oceans. Mm. So, you know, in a, in a way, we have to be, I think, uh, look at look at the perspective has to adjust. Uh, another thing that I would say is that there are certain characteristics of climate abuse which have to do with habitat and biodiversity that we can feel the consequences of almost overnight, very, very fast. As we work with uh, issues of climate and environment, we have to approach both material use and, and energy use in relation to the materials we choose. We have to be more sensible about reusing things uh, rather than building everything new all the time. We do need to make new things also, but we need to be more sensible about uh, protecting old, older things and reusing them. Very importantly, we need to build habitat back into our world. All that habitat that we displace every time we make something, all those holes in the ground that are the places where those bricks come from or the holes in the forest where the wood comes from, we have to replace that continuously and at a very high rate of speed. And here in New York City, we're designing a garden on Madison Avenue at 550 Madison, which um, provides habitat just for creatures other than humans in the middle of a city adjacent to Central Park. It's not just a place for people to be comfortable, but it's a place for birds and insects to be comfortable and other creatures that can reconnect to the cities we live in. So all of that has to be done at the same time, and it's really quite urgent. That was Ask the Artist, your chance to hear your own questions on the show. Don't forget that you can even hear your own voice on the show if you submit a listener voicemail through our website. While it's too late to submit a voice question to Craig, you can find out which guests are going to be featured next by following us on our socials at Top Artist Podcast. You can also subscribe to our newsletter for the latest guests and more updates on what we're doing on the podcast. You can find the link to sign up in the show notes of this episode. What impact do you hope your work will have? Maybe in your case, you might want to change the word impact or, or you can feel free to adjust the question a little bit. <laughs> I think I understand the question, even if the word impact is, is a little challenging. As I said earlier, it's what, what world do we hope for as a result of, of, our, of what our practice creates? We certainly hope that we will see a transition in society that is led by the built environment in addition to politics. Now, the architecture, landscape architecture, interior architecture, all of these design professions are not political directly. In other words, we can't pass legislation. We can't direct political thinking. But we can support certain ways of thinking within the physical things that we do create. So every time we make a public space, we like to think about how it empowers people to gather and to connect to strangers. Times Square is a good example of that, uh, how people are more comfortable talking to those around them than they were in the past. They're safer as they move through Times Square than they were in the past, and that gives them a sense of power, empowerment, really. Uh, the opera roof uh, is sets what had been a traditional cultural world that was really only available to very few privileged people can now be accessed by anyone free of charge as they move up and down the roof of the opera, and it gets them interested in an art they might not have understood otherwise. So it opens a door that is different than the one they may have considered natural for them. All of these things help us create a society that we believe can be less polarized 
or let's just say that it won't eliminate opposition and ideas, but will allow us to connect in a more natural way. And of course, that leads us to the real issue that is facing our future, and that is ability to manage climate abuse. I would like to see in our work more focus on biodiversity and habitat, strengthening landscape architecture, uh, which landscape architects are already doing. But I could foresee a future where landscape architects are leading more projects. We have, we have in our studio already landscape architects leading architecture products projects. And for an arch- most architects, that's a very scary thought in our office. It's a wonderful thought. And I think that this hopefully will lead us to a better future, uh, this kind of empowerment of that discipline and that profession, which is older than architecture itself. And I would say if, I, uh, if we can create a, a place where architecture challenges people at the same time that it allows them to feel natural uh, so that we protect our own identity as individuals but feel more closely connected to everything around us. This would be, I suppose, a happy day. Um, None of that will probably come true, (laughs) but um, we strive for that. We strive for diversity and identity, culture in the studio. You know, you can, it's very hard to be perfect. And as I mentioned earlier about Theodore Roosevelt, Uh, We must accept some degree of complexity, work towards a common goal that we feel is positive, and support each other as we move towards that common goal. And um, that that is the only way we can get anywhere closer, I think, to the kind of idealized world that I just mentioned. How can our listeners keep up with Snowheada and all the work that you're doing? Where's the best place to follow you? For many years, we were not connected to any social media, nor were we interested in writing any books about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, That lasted about 15 years. (laughs) Now it's possible to find books that we've published, which I would like to recommend as a media typology. Mm -hmm. Our books are quite uh, tactile and interesting. I would say that we also are available in the various social media outlets. I think we're called at Snohetta. You can see some of the company. If If you go on our website, you can see the people and you might search their names and they have their own studio interests that they post separately, but at Snowheta is generally true, and we're on all the leading social media outlets that we sometimes question why we are involved with. <laughs> I think we all do, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, that sounds great. So we'll have all of the links posted so people can keep up to date. And thanks so much for joining us. All right. Bye, Sam, and, and uh, take care and, and hope everything goes well. I look forward to, to hearing this in, in the cast of pots out there. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed hearing from Craig as much as we enjoyed having him on the show. Don't forget that we've just launched our YouTube channel where we'll be releasing full episodes in video format, special clips of our favorite moments, and bonus content that we couldn't fit in. Tune in next week to hear my co-host Jessica Stewart interview photojournalist Amy Vital. Her work has taken her around the world to document incredible stories, and she'll be here to share them with you. To make sure you don't miss out on that episode or any future episodes, subscribe to the show and sign up for our newsletter. Until then, you can check in with us at mymodernmet.com for more stories on art and culture. Thanks for listening.